Hello and welcome to our festive edition of the Ulster Rugby Roundup. Joining me is uh, this week a rather Santa Claus looking figure in John Baker Dixon. Hello John. Ho 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 ho! <laughs> We're getting into characters, the red jumper and everything that's doing it I think. And the white beard. You could you could get money doing, uh, doing a wee line at a shopping centre or something, a wee Santa Scrato. Yeah, I really have. Have you? Oh yes. Where? I'm not telling you. <laughs> is this a yearly thing? Don't you worry, keep going. Go on. <laughs> that suggests, that suggests there's video or pictures of it somewhere, so yeah. oh, we'll have to take those out. Absolutely. Some uh, investigative journalism required over this now. And that voice you hear is, of course, Adam McHenry. Hello, Adam. Hey, guys. How are you keeping? You, uh, you haven't been invited to be an elf in uh, John's Santa's Grotto either, then? Absolutely not. With the belly I've got on me, I'm more likely to be Santa as well, to be honest. <laughs> And I'm hoping that next year is the year we all get the call up. I could see me, you, Johnny, and Michael and Richard standing outside uh, in the elf costumes. This is this well, is I, we're on to winner here, boys. Well, I could certainly see Mulligan uh, dressed as an elf with those <laughs> chicken legs of his. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, next year, folks, 2022, the Ulster Rugby Roundup, Santa's Grotto. Um, we'll we'll uh, we'll have it in the pipeline. For this year, though, all we have for you is a podcast, which is now rather disappointing in comparison, I know. But uh, we do at least have, of course, a win to look back at against Northampton Saints. And we'll also take you through the two inter-provincial fixtures on Boxing Day and New Year's Day, as there will be no episode in between because it's the holidays and we have too much turkey to be eaten. So first of all, then, the 27, was it 22 it finished, wasn't it? Again, win over Northampton Saints. John, another one of those performances we've seen lately then of uh, a bit of a, a battling win that's shown a, a rather gritty side of Ulster. Yeah, I think it was uh, a good gritty win. Uh, what was really good was the crowds been back um, at Kingspan for that match. Uh, you really could get the buzz uh, from the side of the pitch and when Ulster were going forward, especially with Rob scoring that try early on, it got the crowd going uh, and, and it was a... Very enjoyable match. I, I, I thought there was lots of action in it. Um, it was a bit topsy-turvy from an Ulster point of view and letting the Saints back into it after um, stretching the lead a bit. Uh, and then they got back into the game and then sort of made a, a bit a bit of a nervous finish to it. But all in all, I think anybody who was there um, were justifiably entertained and the right result from an Ulster point of view, five points in the bag. It was a a good continuation um, for, for Dan McFarlane and the boys for uh, for the European campaign. Absolutely. Adam, Dan maybe highlighted some of the, the things that Ulster didn't do so well in terms of um, exiting their own half, odd things, I think he called them. Um, but overall, what did you what did you make of the performance? A bit of a, a mixed bag, but how did you sort of come away feeling? I thought you were setting me up there to be the Scrooge. <laughs> by giving me Dan's negative comment. Look, I mean, I I almost thought it was too entertaining because by half time I think I had about 10 powers written in my report and I had to kind of cut it down a bit because it was getting far too long. Um, good performance, I think, is the main thing. Yes, I'll, I'll focus on the sort of one negative that I have from the game and I'll agree with Dan. Ulster just kept letting Northampton back into it by giving them three points off the restart you know something as simple as crossing straight off the restart or not effectively clearing their lines off the restart it just let George Furbank keep putting Northampton on the board it just kept them in touch if Ulster were able to clear their lines off the restart and just keep Northampton at bay while still putting the points on the board you're just psychologically knocking them down every single time but instead Northampton always had that foothold in the game they always felt just within touching distance of Ulster but I think throughout the game certainly for the first 65 minutes I think you saw that Ulster were quite clearly the superior of the two teams I think one of the things that I always say is Ulster are a much better team whenever they've got those wee forward passes going where they're tipping it on. You saw a great one from Henderson to Marty Murr to set him through. Uh, you saw a couple from uh, Nick Timoney as well. You know, whenever Ulster have got the forwards playing those really quick little passes, they look so much better as a team. And 
we saw that in abundance, especially in the first half, which is how uh, Herring got his try, which is how they just got a lot of uh, purchase at the game line. So overall, I think Dan's going to be very happy with this game. Little things to to uh, to address, but certainly uh, four or sorry, five points on the board in Europe, two from two in Europe. They backed up the Claremont win, which I think was massively important because after they lost at the Ospreys after the Leinster game, I think there was always that little nagging doubt in the back of your head. Uh, could they could they potentially slip up again after a big win? But, you know, I think this was a lot more convincing than the five-point scoreline suggested. And I think Dan will be very happy that they were able to uh, back it up and given the climate that Europe's in at the moment, I think they'll be very happy to be sitting there two from two going into January. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just happy to have played two games at this stage, probably, regardless of the of winning them. Um, John, we probably haven't had you on in recent weeks after those wins over Leinster, I don't think, but certainly not after the win over Clermont and, and now this one. How... For anybody who who is uh, new to the podcast and doesn't, we didn't give you your full introduction. You are a Ulster rugby photographer extraordinaire within the bubble at the uh, Ulster rugby, and just how encouraging has it been? And and do they feel within the camp that they are starting to to get these sort of wins? Does it feel like there's been a bit of a a corner turned? Because I know certainly, um, some of them have felt that in previous years those are games that Ulster probably wouldn't have got over the line in. Yeah, yeah, I think there is, but you have to remember that you know after that great win at the RDS, um, they went to uh, you know Ospreys and lost. Um, so that was that brought them back down to earth very quickly, mm-hmm. and I think that that was disappointing from an Ulster point of view because they had achieved a lot the week before. They did a lot of things right, and then they just didn't execute when they went to uh, Swansea. So I think that I think that brought them back down to earth, but then. You look at then the Heineken Cup is a new campaign. It's a different competition, and they certainly went to Claremont and uh, put in another brilliant performance. You couldn't have faulted them really. Uh, and to be fair to them, they came back and and did the same in Belfast on Friday night. They they went out and they achieved um, a bonus point win. So the momentum is a good thing to have at this time of the year. Uh, there's lots of um, hard fixtures coming up, Connacht and Leinster. So it's important that. You know, they're going into this Christmas uh, with uh, a couple of decent wins under the belt. And sort of just summing that up, does it sort of feel, I mean, probably I feel looking on that there's maybe a, a, a sense of a grounded optimism that especially after the Ospreys result, they're certainly not getting ahead of themselves. But at the same time, maybe a little quiet confidence there that they're they're very much trending in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. And it shows in training when you... When you're watching them uh, line up taking photos of training, you can tell that they're you know they're buzzing and there's um, a good atmosphere and and you know when they when they, they go through the training session and they lift the levels up you know they go from level level two to level one and you know and 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 the intensity that they actually bring to their training sessions is brilliant um, and they all work for each other um, work hard for each other the team that's helping them prepare for the the game coming up uh, are fighting very hard and. Uh, making things difficult for them, and and then the the starting team there are obviously uh, trying to put things in plan for for the game itself. So it is a, it's a it's a very uh, interesting sort of um, scenario watching them and seeing how they actually work together as a unit as a as a squad, and the effort's always there, and and the and the smiles are on their faces, whether in the starting team or in the on the Sherpas or the the team that actually that does the uh, the. the um, they used to be called uh, the Wheelers, but now they're called the Sherpers. Uh, they they do help them run for the the game the week for the, um, for the following week, and and it's it really is good to see the the atmosphere in the in the in the team at the minute and the squad at the minute. Yeah, what are the Sherpas? Yeah, they've got this thing. They they they're called the Sherpas, uh, and they're it's to do with um, the the team building and and uh, how the Sherpas help the um, mountaineers climb the mountain. Right. Okay. So so the Sherpas help prepare the team for the um oh, very good. for the way ahead for the week week ahead and that's sort of a it's to do with an internal thing within the yeah. within the squad but that's what they're called they call them the Sherpas. Very good. So that means Richard, Johnny and Michael are the Sherpas for the Ulster Rugby Roundup this week then. Haven't quite, yeah. haven't quite <laughs> <made the grade. laughs> Adam, as you said, then all of that optimism with where Ulster are going in the Heineken Cup, as you called it John and I still love to call it the Heineken Cup. But overall 
Two games cancelled last weekend, five postponed, 16 of 24 have now been played over the first two weekends of the competition. Is this competition going to be played to a finish, Adam, or what do you think? Like, What are we looking at here? Question on everyone's lips right now, isn't it? It's not an ideal situation, mainly because where do you get these free weekends to reschedule all these games that EPCR seem determined to rearrange? Like, If you look ahead in the fixtures, there's weekends free during the Six Nations, but nobody wants to play European games during the Six Nations. That completely devalues the competition. There have been a few rumours that they would potentially take out the last 16 over two legs. They would reschedule the games in there and then just go straight to the quarterfinals. So that would require pretty much a big rejig of the entire competition. Mm-hmm. But then we're also in a situation where, you know, the the next two pool games are only, I think, three weeks away, three, four weeks away. And there's every chance that the situation hasn't improved to a degree that the French government say, yes, you can come over and play your games, or yes, we'll be happy to send our teams over to play in the UK. So we could get to a situation three or four weeks' time where we're still in exactly the same situation and you're having to cancel a load more games. And therefore, you could get to a point where some teams have played four games and some teams have played one. So where the competition goes from here is, I think, probably determined on what the situation is like in January. I think EPCR will try to complete the tournament, if at all possible. If it means you have to devalue it by just handing out wins on a case-by-case basis and forming the knockouts in that way, then that's how it's going to be. You know, we were talking about this before before we started recording, and um, I'll give John the credit for this point, but financially they have to play this competition for from a sponsorship perspective from a from a tv perspective they have to play this competition so if it has to be behind closed doors if they have to completely rejig it then that's what they're going to have to do but as far as the polls go i think there's not going to be any situation here where you're going to come out of it where it's not devalued in some way you've got leinster uh pursuing legal proceedings to try and get their game against Montpellier replayed rather than giving the points to Montpellier. I think you might have some other teams pursuing that if a similar situation maybe happens in January. So I I don't think there's any clean way that EPCR get out of this pool stage, but I think one way or another, this tournament will be played to completion. So John, either way, it looks like something's got to give at some stage of this competition. Do you think there's any prospect that we could proceed without French clubs? Because like, let's face it, it doesn't look like the Omicron uh, situation is going to get remarkably better between now and the middle of January, does it? Um, so in that way, you'd think, uh, is the French policy unlikely to change? So therefore, what happens, John? It'd be very disappointing if that is the case. Um, but yeah, you're right. It doesn't look good for the middle of January um, if you listen to what's happening in the news at the minute. Um, I don't know. It's such a big competition and it's so important to get it played. Wait until after the Six Nations uh, and see if there's a slot in there after the Six Nations, after the URC and Premiership and Top 14 has played and playing all in a block after the the end of the season or something, you know, or after the end of the regular season. I don't know. I just don't know. But yeah. it'd be awful to think that you're playing the competition with the top cl- clubs in Europe out of it. And potentially, obviously, Toulouse, Racing um, would definitely be a, in, a, in a semi-final, final situation. Yeah. You'd imagine. Yeah, no, definitely. Adam, I think you had mentioned something uh, uh, like change, perhaps changing the uh, the structure then as well of the knockout stages. So with that in mind, obviously Ulster were bitten by this sort of thing in the league last year. And I suppose that makes, if they go ahead, Ulster's last two games all the more important because you could all of a sudden find yourself in a situation where there's not eight teams from the pool going through anymore. If they have to scrap the last 16, there's only four and you need to make sure you're in it. Well, look, Ulster's last two games are important anyway because they're going for home advantage in the knockouts, which we all know is massive in Europe. But yeah, if if you cut it down, obviously, then it does become much more important because you need to make it into four rather than eight. I I think Ulster will be very confident going into the last two games. They have put themselves in a position where 
they should be able to close it out and make it into the knockouts. Like home game against Claremont, like Claremont are still a good team, but you'd back Ulster to beat anybody at home in Europe. And if you've beaten them away, there's absolutely no reason why you can't beat them at home. And Northampton, the final game, there's every chance that the Saints will have nothing to play for in that game and will have more than one eye on the Premiership the following weekend. So again, you would like to hope that Ulster, even against the full strength Saints side, I think Ulster should be going over to Franklin's Gardens and thinking they could win anyway. Yeah. Um, but certainly, yes, if, if they cut it down, it would certainly put a lot more importance on it. But look, Ulster aren't going into these final two games thinking we've done our job. There is top seeding on the line here. And if you can have home advantage all the way through to the final, it makes your job that much easier. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think it's uh, the importance is. You have to push that for that home advantage. It's so, so crucial. Yeah. So you're absolutely right, Adam. You need to, to win these next two games. Uh, take no prisoners. Get as many points as you can. Uh, and then just see where, where it ends up. Well, fingers crossed that Ulster do get the opportunity to to play both of this these of those games. So many unknowns at the minute, John, with the rise of the, the Omicron variant and, and all the impact it's having on rugby and and even um football and and all sports what's this mood been like in the ulster camp regarding it all i know dan wasn't dan super spoke last week about just needing a bit of luck at this stage for it not to affect ulster is there sort of an in like heightened awareness or uh, fear or anything or, or or just wariness about what the what they're doing or what's the mood like regarding uh, it all i think i think i mean like Ulster have been ultra careful, um, you know, round this um, this virus and and um, you know when you when you whenever I attend uh, training and things, you know, your temperatures taken and and uh, you do your 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 daily health check and you know there's an onus on everybody who who's involved in the team or around the team that they do everything to mitigate spreading that virus to the squad and yeah. they, they've been hyper hypersensitive about the whole thing to their to their credit. So while it might be awkward enough trying to take pictures with a mask on at the side of a pitch on a cold, frosty morning, I can tell you, and your lens is steaming up and your eye, your glasses are steaming up, it's an absolute nightmare to get try to do your job. But you do it because that's what's required. And you know, the players turn up and they behave themselves and and they they don't mess about and you know it's just everything's very professional the, the staff the doctor everything that everything that they do is designed and and executed to mitigate mm. the spread of this virus yeah so Mot- they're doing everything they can to keep themselves safe yeah. and they're doing everything they can to make sure they can put field the team the following week listen to the news today looks as if we're all going to get it <laughs> at some point uh so it's a matter of just try and keep your head down keep keep be sensible about how you behave and and what you do to try to mitigate getting the thing you know it's, nobody wants to get it and certainly everybody's been boosted and what have you and double jabbed and mm. as fingers crossed everything stays stays uh, the way it is Absolutely. Keep our fingers crossed that uh, all of the games go ahead and also, uh, even more importantly, that everybody stays healthy within Ulster and uh, ourselves and, and uh, our listeners as well. Um, more on the game itself then. Ethan McElroy, Craig Gilroy talking a lot about him in uh, Monday's newspaper, which you can still read that story online, um, about his uh, the touch of magic that, that he possesses, Adam. And uh, he really showed it with that, with that try, didn't he? What a step. I think we've got to say Cornell Skosen doesn't exactly cover himself in much glory by covering a player who's already covered, but even so, the step from McElroy is world-class. Um, go by, the, the chip from Hume is brilliant. The gather from McElroy, the step is superb. Being able to hold off Holly Slide home to go over the line, that's just one of those tries that you have to sit back and go, that was superb. And I think the thing that impresses me most about McElroy is he hasn't really had that sort of magic moment. Whenever Jacob Stockgill burst onto the scene, he was scoring tries left, right, and center. He was producing these wonderful plays and everyone thought he was, uh, he was the next big thing, which he turned out to be. Ethan McElroy has come in and he hasn't quite had that, you know, that in your face X factor, 
but what he does is he gives you a set at least a seven out of ten every single week. He is defensively sound. I want to I want to point out that defensive read he missed, he made against Claremont. I can't remember the player he tackled. It might have been Barack, but he uh, he popped out of the line whenever Claremont had possibly like a four on one superb defensive read that you would expect from a guy like Keith Earls or uh, Andrew Trimble in, in his day, you know, where you you would pick out the guy and just hit him. And he basically cut down a try-scoring opportunity. So defensively sound, he always makes yards in the in the carry. He's got a great leg drive whenever he's hitting the tackle, and he always gives you that little bit of extra yardage. I've been so impressed at how he's just nailed down that, uh, that jersey on the wing. He's still only 21. Like, mm-hmm. You think he's been there for ages because he just seems so secure in that jersey, but he's still only 21. He's got massive upside. Like, I don't see any reason why you would be looking to drop him at this stage. I think he has made that jersey his own. And we talk about Jacob Stockdale having to work his way back into the Ireland team whenever he comes back from injury. I think he has to work his way back into the Ulster team because... I don't see any reason why you would say that uh, Ethan McElroy deserves to give up his jersey for anybody at the moment. Mm-hmm. John? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, he's been brilliant. Um, and like, I mean, Gilly giving them praise. Who, who remembers Gilly's debut um, against Cardiff back at the Cardiff City Stadium some 22 or 2001 caps ago when he did that, something similar where he just lit the place up with uh, side steps and uh, making the, the, the Cardiff defence look absolute idiots and uh, scoring two cracking tries. And that was Gilly's debut. So he knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. But young um, young McElroy, uh, fantastic uh, to see him do something special like that on a night like that in front of a crowd like that. Wonderful. And it, they actually fight to make the line. And he just made it by an inch. Yeah. But... That's all you need to do, uh, and he's he scored it uh, brilliantly. The only thing I was upset with is when he went over that line, his back and his head was up t- against me, so I never got a decent picture of it. Yeah. You need to have <laughs> a word with him. I was disappointed from that point of view, but what I got his run in. I got the pe- the picture of him actually uh, when he when he when James Shum kicked the ball through, and he actually the ball bounced, and I've got the shot where the ball bounces up, and he actually realizes what's in front of him, and he's got this ball. The millisecond before he got it into his hands, his mouth opens up, and he just <laughs> just got that picture, which is lovely. But I got the run in, but when he goes over the line, there's a whole clamber of bodies over his back, and I didn't get the the, uh, the money be, shot on that one. There should be some sort of disciplinary procedure for players yeah, looking at you after the score tries. You got to tell them they've got to actually celebrate properly. You know, give well, it, give a proper you to the crowd or something like that. Well, he did that. <laughs> give a wee one to be fair. You give a wee fist. Uh, we well, did that, no, but I mean that's the thing. And again, uh, talking about the crowd, once he got that ball in his hands, the whole place just erupted, yeah. and it was just so much excitement in that. And he had to carry from that distance, and the the noise got louder and louder and louder. And obviously, when he made the line, whoa! And and to be fair, whenever Rob Herring scored his and Gilly scored uh, in the second half, it was the same. It was just. Billy put that kick in in the second half. You could see that ball hanging and hanging and hanging, and it just and and it was just so surprised to see Kelly just let it bounce and into his hands. You know, it was just crazy. I, uh, I, place went nuts. It was very was, very good. I was sitting beside Johnny uh, on the at the game on Friday, and we were both saying Craig Gilroy's try is probably one of the scrappiest tries you'll ever see. The kick wasn't perfect no. from Billy. The read from Asi Toala was absolutely not perfect. Like he just, comp- I, I've watched it back a couple of times and I can't tell if he just misjudges the flight of the ball, if he has just positioned himself a little incorrectly or what exactly it is, but he just gets it completely wrong. And Gilly almost looks shocked that the ball has bounced up into his hands and he's over for the try. But you know what? Sometimes in Europe, you take them anyway, they're coming. Yeah. I mean, what was interesting about that was about, Two minutes before Billy put that kick in, um, Gilly was on his on his down down on one knee. Now he wasn't hurt or anything, but he was actually trying to hide the fact that he was in that wing hanging out, <laughs> holding the width. And he went down onto one knee and you know waiting for waiting waiting just to stand up and put his hand up for uh, for the ball to be knocked over to him. So Billy knew he was there uh, and he held his width really well. And you know unless he you do that, you don't create the opportunity for Billy to put that ball over the 
over the top. But uh, I got a photograph from down on one knee, and he's got his hand on his on his knee like that, as if he's having a real good think. A Greek statue, yes. <laughs> I, I put it up on my Instagram. So uh, a wee plug for Bigger uh, at Bigger Dixon. So if you go onto my Instagram, uh, you'll see that it's the last picture in the row. And uh, funny enough, it was one of my favourite pictures from uh, from Friday night. There is, as Adam says, bigger. There is real competition for places in those uh, those wing positions now, as as much as ever. With Robert Balakou never getting better, and now Ethan McElroy uh, coming up to to really start to uh, realise his potential in there. Jacob Stockdale does have a, a bit of a job in his hands now. He does, and, and Rob Little. Don't forget yeah. Rob Little's in that mix as well. Uh, uh, I know that some talent. But Rob Little can also play fullback, which is good from an Ulster point of view. Um, you know, to have that capacity there, you know, a, a player of that quality um, who can do so much to, he's, he's another stepper, uh, a guy on the attack who can really produce the goods uh, is Rob Little. So, you know, there's so much talent in that Ulster back line. People sort of tend to forget who's still sitting in the wings. Yeah, no, absolutely. There, there's so many to keep track of. Another man, obviously, who got plenty of attention after the game, Adam, was Nick Timoney, who's getting plenty of attention all the season, probably rightly so, man of the match. And uh, he's just much like many of the Ulster players, seems to be getting better all the time. I'm not sure there's anything more I can say about him that hasn't already been said about him. Like, the guy is just turning in quality performances week on week. Like, if it, I said Ethan McElroy never turns in anything less than a seven. Usually he's a bit higher than that. Nick seems to turn in nothing less than eight. And generally it's getting a little bit higher than that. I would say if, if, there, is, if there is such a case as someone being undroppable, I think then Nick Timoney is that at the moment. Just that... I'll give a shout out to uh, one of the guys who does great analysis on Twitter, uh, The Loose Head. He put up a gif of uh, that little break that Stuart Murr did and he he puts Nick Timoney back away on, on his inside. Watch the line that Nick Timoney runs off the side of the scrum. So smart to break off the side of the scrum and run ahead of the play so that by the time that Stuart Murr has made the break, Timoney's in the perfect position to take the pass and he just bulldozes over the guy in front of him as well. Like, the thing that impresses me most about Timoney is he's so athletic, but he's also added a lot of muscle over the summer. Like he is such a strong, physically powerful athlete. He's not lost any of that sevens ability where you you need to be sort of fast and elusive primarily, but he has added what you need from a flanker, which is that physicality. And that is translated into how he's able to carry and how he is able to get in on the breakdown so effectively. I think he won another two turnovers on uh, Friday night against the back row containing Courtney Laws, containing Lewis Ludlam, who I think is a criminally underrated player. I think he's an outstanding player uh, at open side. Um, and Tom Wood, who is a former open side himself. So you know, to go up against the back row like that, and to have a game like he did, to me, he has to be in the Ireland squad for the Six Nations. I think he's one of the most impressive back rowers in Ireland at the moment. And I think if you're overlooking him, then you're overlooking probably one of the foreign players on the island at the moment. And for all the talk that there has been about Dwayne Vermeulen, and rightly so, he's a World Cup winner, he's a he's a springbok, and he is your marquee signing. But for me, Nick Timoney is your number one back rower at the moment. John, there's been a lot of talk about it how much better he's got this season even uh, as good as he's been since lockdown really um, he's stepped it up another notch this season but just what have you seen from him in training what's going on how's he how's he getting so much better I think there's a the, the Vermeulen factor um, has has played into it a bit and that he um, he's obviously had to push himself or to put his hand up to show show Dan that he's capable of being a part of that Ulster back row. I think there's another thing too. I mean, I think I said it in the the last podcast I was on uh, after the Autumn Internationals that, you know, the, the Andy Farrell got a bit of stick for not maybe playing a number of, of, of Ulster players and that are selecting them for caps during that window. Yeah. And I said, look, the caps have to be earned by playing for your province first. Yeah. And going down there and holding tackle bags isn't going to earn you a cap. You have to actually put the performances in on the pitch. And I stand by that. And the one player or two players that have actually put their hand up massively are Nick Timoney and James Hume. Yeah. 
Yeah. They've been incredible since they've come back from that Ireland camp. They have stood out like a sore thumb. Mm. And to be yeah. to be fair, they keep playing like that. They, they cannot be ignored for the green jersey when it comes around to the Six Nations. They they, thir- they will thoroughly deserve it. So long as they keep delivering that standard and playing the way they're playing, there's no doubt that that's where they'll be headed. Yeah. Yeah, fingers well, crossed that they uh, that they can just keep it up in the, the the weeks leading up to the Six Nations. One one of the other things I want to add about Nick Timoney is how his role has had to change with the signing of Vermeulen, because if you think about it, also originally signed Leone Nakarawa, and Nakarawa, I, John John can maybe fill in a, a little bit of the gaps here, but I would have seen him more as a blindside flanker. I would have yeah. thought he would have played. Yeah, he would have played six rather than eight. And Nick Timoney, therefore, was probably going to be your eight going mm. forward. But whenever you sign Dwayne Vermeulen, Vermeulen's going to be your eight. He, he is a number eight. So Timoney has had to shift back to open side. Now, I also have made a point of saying that their they're back rowers, they want them to do a variety of jobs, and it doesn't really matter what number's on your back. But there are still slight variations. You know, your number eight is not going to play exactly the same way as your open side. So Nick Timoney... Even though he has played seven in the in the past, you know it's not like it's a completely foreign role. But he had to fill in at eight whenever Marcel left, and he's now had to shift back to open side in order to accommodate uh, Vermeulen. But the the shift has been seamless. You know, there's been no grumbling. He's just got his head down. He's done his work. He now has that versatility where he can slot in at seven or eight. I think we we saw whenever uh, whenever Freemillan went off against Claremont, he took on more of the of the ball carrying as a result. Everything that he's being asked to do, he's doing. Everything that Ireland have asked him to do, he's done. He's he's got up in the morning and gone all the way down to Dublin to be on the bench against Argentina. Whenever he he could have been not prepared for that, he was ready. He went down and he got another cap. Anything that Ulster have asked him to do, he's done. He's ticking all those boxes. At some point, as John says, you've got to say. I've ticked all these boxes. When am I getting my reward of uh, of another cap or uh, of a string of caps in a row? I think that that's just the next step for him. Yeah, fingers crossed. Do you, know what, do you know what is exciting about that Ulster back row? The one player that you have not mentioned at all in this podcast so far is Marcus Ray. Yeah. Wow, how, how good he been? I feel bad. I feel bad for not mentioning him because for, for a guy who hasn't played, I'm, I'm trying to remember when his previous game well I think one of the games in the Rainbow Cup you know he's had such a long time out of the team he has an outstanding cameo against Leinster he was superb off the bench against Leinster um, came off the bench and was good against the Ospreys went out against Claremont first European start in a place like the Stab Marcel Michelin and kept Claremont's uh, back row completely quiet I thought Claremont's back row were pretty much anonymous during that game. And for a back row that contains Ituria, a French international, Yato, a Fijian international, and Lee, one of the biggest ball carriers in Europe. And he kept them quiet. Had another fantastic game against Northampton, won a couple of turnovers in that game. Like for, for someone to just be dropped straight back in and produce performances like that, you gotta be excited about that. Mm. And then and then look what he did on Friday night. Turnover ball again. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And he spoke so well last week too about uh, going to watch the matches um, with his with his dad when he was younger, standing on the terraces, and now um, playing for Ulster. It uh, it's great to see it when it's uh, when it's genuine fans um, going on to do it as well. So oh, while we're talking about all of these young players who are coming up and uh, always improving for Ulster and knocking on the door of Ireland, Jack Fogarty asks almost like the Lancer game mental strength against Northampton was superb those games against Lancer Claremont and now Northampton have shown the resilience and consistency that he says he hasn't seen in a while we talked about that a little bit earlier but he asks is this the start of a golden generation for Ulster rugby is this uh, this sounds like a question I would ask in terms of getting overly excited maybe a little bit too soon but is there is there merit in it? Do you think, John? Um, I think that uh, Ulster are in a good place at the minute with some of the, ta- the talent that's coming through. Um, the The academy system uh, is working very well, and um, it was interesting to note on Friday afternoon that Neil Doak has now been appointed as backs coach into that academy system, and boy, how will they benefit from that? Like, there's no doubt that Doakie is one of the best coaches in Ireland. Uh, it's well recognised that he's. Uh, 
he is a quality coach and Ulster will only benefit from that, having him there and his experience in that academy, along with with um, Willie Falloon, who's coaching in the forwards, um, and Gavin Hogg, who is the uh, head of the academy now. And uh, I think that will in itself produce another string of young crop of players that will come through you know you look at there's the other player that, that you know they've got down there is Tom Stewart and Tom picked up an injury again against the Ospreys he's been very unfortunate Tom with his injuries yeah. but he is a quality quality player and whenever Tom gets fit again and comes back in there um, he'll he'll certainly put his hand up um, and another young player that was he's been away in the Irish um, seven set up is Zach Ward Andy Ward's son and again he he is a talent uh, that that needs just to be given a chance as well, and like he 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 could come through uh, on the blind side, so to speak. <laughs> young Wardy, uh, so there's lots of young talent in there. Um, they're and they're playing all Iron League rugby, and and they're playing and they're they're from the in that academy, and they will be involved in the A setup. And don't forget the A the A team almost beat the Leinster A team, a very very strong Leinster A team down in Banbridge about uh, four or five weeks ago. Um, they put a great performance in. That was the it was the the, the day before our um, Ulster went down to the RDS and beat them in uh, uh, Leinster, the, the senior team. So it, it's a there's a lot of positives for Ulster in their youth. And uh, you know you got to look at Marcus Ray being one of the young ones as well. James Hume, Michael Laurie, you've Rob Little. All these are youngsters. Yeah, youngsters. With- I think that I think the best way I would put it is the building blocks are in place. Yeah, that's that's not like get run away with ourselves after three wins and immediately declare this is a golden generation. But I think we can agree that there are blocks in place that the potential is there for this to be a very good generation. Like you look in every single position that Ulster have, they have at least one young player who is trying to push through there's at least one young player coming through we forget about how good Cormac as a was whenever he made a few appearances at the start of the year you know and he's someone who has to come back after his injury and potentially add to the second row stocks so look as I said let's pump the brakes a wee bit let's not immediately declare that Ulster are about to go on a on a five-year run where they're challenging for trophies consistently but let's not also downplay this for, you know, just for the sake of it. There are a lot of good things that Ulster have done, not just over the last few weeks, but over the past year, you can see how they have been progressing. So there are reasons for optimism going into 2022 and beyond. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's not just just jump on the train just yet. Yeah. Just two, two more players to mention, Josh Hamlin and Hooker. And Ruben Crullers, another flanker, another back row player, both in the Irish under twenty setup. Um, there are two two other players from the academy that um, will hopefully come through into the senior system. There's no doubt the signs are are fairly positive, and with Duke Ward and Humphreys all coming up, how could you not be excited? Sure, it's great. <laughs> um, if, if all else fails, just go back to the 1999 squad. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> A couple more points on the the match itself then. Well, first of all, we had the injuries to Stuart McCloskey and Ian Henderson. Now, by the time this podcast come out, we will already have had an Ulster press conference. And I'm sure we'll have been told loads about the injuries in that. Not, probably have been told nothing. But if there is anything, we will let you know. John, are you prepared to give us any insider knowledge that we'll no doubt not get at the press conference here? What's going on with the two of them? No, I have no idea. Yeah. Just all, all. We just know that it's a hammy for. Uh, uh, I think it's quite obvious with a hamstring for um, Stewart and an ankle for for Handy. So we just don't know how bad they are. Wait and see, and uh, fingers crossed, we might get some sort of uh, some sort of update this week on what the situation with. Uh, those guys is one point that got a little bit of discussion from Brian O'Driscoll. I know uh, was the penalty try. Was there any debate here? Anybody want to? Want to say it shouldn't have been a penalty try? No. <laughs> no. I mean, why was there a debate then? Do you think there's any merit in the debate? Or, well, Gilly, Gilly was going to take a pop pass. Um, well, well, two, two or three yards short of the line. It was, it was a, it was a done deal for me. 
The, the only thing I could potentially think of is I think there was one Saints player in behind the defensive line, but I don't think he was getting across to cover. That It was definitely a deliberate knock-on because Mitchell's hands were on top of the ball rather than to the side of the ball to try and catch it. So you, you, it wasn't like a natural catching motion. Therefore, you could call it just a knock-on. I, I think it's a penalty try. You'll probably go a long way to find anybody except Brian Brown O'Driscoll uh, inside Kingspan Stadium on uh, what was it again? Saturday night. Friday night. Disagree with that. Friday night. Who would disagree with that? Adam, well, can... Chris Boyd. Chris Boyd disagreed with it on uh, <laughs> Friday yeah. night, but he he would. <laughs> yeah. Well, not many people within Ulster then. Okay. Uh, who would disagree with that one? So. LJ O'Brien asks, perhaps a new questioner. I'm not sure uh, I am familiar with LJ O'Brien. If you, it's your first question, very welcome. What are your thoughts on the latest trend of a 6-2 split on the bench? Is it a tactical choice for the last couple of games or, or a lack of preferred back three players available? Well, if you go to the Claremont game, you know Craig Gilroy wasn't in that match day squad and he is most certainly uh, an available option. Um, no, look, I think the 6-2 split over the last couple of weeks is mainly because Dwayne Vermeulen wasn't going to play the full 80 against Claremont. Therefore, you need an extra uh, back rower to cover any eventual possibilities later in the game. Like, if you know that you have to bring Vermeulen off after 50 minutes or however long they were going to let him go, he, he only went 50. But, um, you know, if another back rower goes down, then you're snookered. So that's why you have an extra back rower. Um, and then on Friday night, I'm assuming it was for Henderson, who probably went off a little bit earlier than what they expected because of his injury. But I imagine he wasn't going to play the full 80 as well. So that's why you have Carter and Treadwell both on the bench to to cover a potential injury to Alan O'Connor later in the game. Mm. Uh, so I look, we, we've talked about it in the podcast before. I don't mind the 6-2 split. I would quite like it even in a non-injury situation because I think Ulster do have a lot of versatility in the backs that they can move a lot of guys around and if they want to try and cover a bit more in the in the forwards and that would be okay but I don't think this is like a a strategy that they're planning to do long term or anything like that I think this was just a on a needs must basis okay John what have you made of Dwayne Vermeulen a couple of games in all very exciting what have you made of performances I think I think he's done very well um you know, he, he's a different type of player from Marcel Kutsia, uh, but he's very smart and he knows what he's doing. And do you know what? I've even seen him in training. Uh, I've watched him actually, you know, working with the line out and giving his uh, opinion about different bits and pieces and, and technical details that he's able to bring to the boys already, you know. So, he, he, you know, he has only arrived and yet he's, he's fitting in so well and... Uh, He's contributing as much as he can, but on you know on the field, um, he's a you know he's so respected and he's um, he's one of these players that you know players will rally around. The same as Handy, mm-hmm. rally the rap boys rally around whenever Handy's on the team. You, you can see that they're lifted. Um, so I think he's done very well. He um, I think he got the full eighty, didn't he, on the, on Friday night? He did. He did. Um, so that was good for that. Uh, so he'll only get better. Um, yeah. And big couple of games now over Christmas. Um, hope he just uh, continues to go the way he has been. One of, one of the things that I'd quite like to know, I'm, g- I'm going to probe you a little bit, John, what kind of a, a leader is he? Is he constantly talking or is he only giving input whenever it's needed? What's he like on the training ground? No, he's constantly talking. They all, they all do. Um, you know, whenever, um, it's not a case of one person speaking all the time. I think it's, I mean, they do, um, when players are, are in their units and they're doing their bits and pieces, you know, line out work and what have you, they, they're always talking about technique and what they want and when the ball is going to be thrown. It, it's, a, it's very much uh, um, a full-on discussion between them all so that everybody's 100% sure of what, what they're doing. I mean, the days where you used to see line out mistakes made, when, when was the last time you saw Ulster make a complete error in a line out? You know, it's because that detail is always worked on and they know exactly what they're doing yeah. and where they are on the pitch. It's, it's quite a technical thing. And um, the, the Roddy Grant um, has to take a lot of credit for his work and his line-out work. And, you know, it's collaborative between, you know, you've got, you've got so many good jumpers. You've got Handy, you've got Al O'Connor, you've got Treadwell. Um, and then you've got, obviously, you can bring in Greg Jones, 
who, who takes a fair bit of line-out ball. You've got Dwayne who will take line-out ball. So there's lots of lifters, lots of options. Uh, so they all just gel together and they all work together and they all have the little bits and pieces that they want, you know, if they're going to be receiving the ball. And um, it, it, it's great to see. One of the other big talk, well, it seemed to be a big talking point after the game uh, in, in some circles, and it's Donald's question. Clock in the red, five-point lead, penalty awarded. You have three choices, two that increase the risk of conceding points, but mean you can deny Northampton a losing bonus point. One guarantees the win and gives the opponent, well, gives Northampton in this case, a bonus point. What would you do? Kick a goal, line out, kick it out. Surely, we talked about this last week in in that the structure of the Champions Cup is such that it's the 12-team pool. Ulster are now eight points ahead of Northampton. Surely it doesn't really matter to Ulster if Northampton get the the bonus points. So just take out any risk and end the game. Who cares if Northampton get a bonus point? Is that not... That was my reading of it. Is that not... uh, Well... Well, technically, that's right. Um, they don't. You don't have to worry um, too much about it, to be honest, because Northampton more or less out of it now, so it doesn't. They're out of Ulster's uh, radar, so to speak. But I, at that stage of the game, um, possibly if I'd been on the team as captain, I would said to Dougie, right, have a go at goal. Uh, <laughs> basically, eat up the clock. Just stick the ball down there and have a dig at it. And uh, if you get it, you get it. If you get it. That's another three points uh, to your your to your uh, your points tally. Um, at the end of the day, the the bonus and you'll prevent Northampton from getting the bonus point, but it also gets you three more points onto your uh, your your points four, which uh, could come into it. Mm. Say it's getting very close at the end of the four games, and another extra points, two extra points or three extra points could mean the difference. That's the only reason why I would have kicked it um, and given Dougie a bang at it, but. Um, like Adam pointed out, but then it could have gone off the crossbar and uh, but rebounded out, and then given uh, uh, the Saints counter-attack to build on, <laughs> that, would, that would have added a very exciting finish to the game. So it's, it swings and roundabouts. At the end of the day, it didn't really matter much, did it? If this comes back to bite Ulster, something far bigger has gone wrong than that decision, shall we say. <laughs> we were talking a little while ago then about uh, Ulster players getting larger roles with Ireland for the Six Nations. Another question about a potential international. Stephen McCormick says, do you agree with Brian O'Driscoll? Again, he's getting to mention quite a bit in this podcast that Michael Lowry is not big enough to break through uh, for Ireland. John, is he too small? No. Good, that's that, Delta. (laughs) Look, at the end of the day, uh, one of the best sort of, players in the British eyes over the last few years, well, in recent times, was um, uh, Shane Williams mm. uh, and uh, Jason Robinson. They were not big guys. Yeah. And uh, Brian O'Driscoll would have played Lions rugby with those two guys. And uh, like for him to turn around and say that about Michael Laurie is just ridiculous. That's my opinion. Mm. And um, Michael certainly has got all the talent in the world. So hopefully he can prove Brian wrong. Yeah. Well, think, think about who one of the best players in the world is right now. Cheslin Colby. Yeah. Who's <laughs> yeah. five foot nothing. Like, is he too small to play rugby? I don't think you get anyone in the world saying that. Time is ticking on. We, we better move on. Uh, of course, we've got a couple of games to preview at home to Comet on Boxing Day and at home to Leinster on New Year's Day. Given that little slip up in the league against Ospreys, Ulster have the uh, Falling behind a little bit again. They're third in the table now, four behind Lancer, three behind Edinburgh. What's the the target for these two games? Too happy enough with with two wins that they uh, could could very well see them back top of the table. Then not overly concerned about bonus points. Personally, I would be happy with just two wins. Yeah. Um. Just get us back on the winning uh, winning trail. Connacht had a very, very hard battle against Leicester at the weekend. Did very well to get the bonus point out of that game. And, you know, Connor have been playing reasonably well. They slipped up at the RDS big time because uh, Leinster were on the bounce back from uh, the defeat against uh, against Ulster. So they were not going to uh, do the double again <laughs> and let uh, Connor beat them. But yeah. it'll be a tight game. Um, both of them will be tight games. Uh, and certainly... Uh, get the first one out of the way, 
Boxing Day, let's get Connacht, uh, send Connacht back west with a uh, with a defeat, and and I think that's where you start from. Leinster is going to be very tough on New Year's Day, very tough. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously they they are coming up here to do to do uh, damage to us, and uh, I think it'll be a tough tough game for Ulster. But I, I don't see why we can't win it. I would have, I'd be confident enough we can win it, but it's going to be a tough game. Yeah, they'll certainly be fired up for that. Well, for both of them, but for that Connacht one, given uh, given what happened. Yeah, if, if they aren't, then you uh, you need to give your head a wobble because any time a team suffers a defeat like they did at the Aviva, they uh, you you really want to have some kind of a, a response the next time you play that team. But as John says, Connacht are playing very well. Uh, they conceded two of their tries against Leicester whenever they were down to fourteen men. So. You know, if you think about that, it was maybe even a little bit closer than the final scoreline suggested. So, um, really impressed by uh, what Andy Friend's doing down there. He's getting a lot out of the limited resources he has. So, the problem is with these games, and it happens every year, it's hard to predict how games are going to go because you don't know how coaches are going to rotate their squads. Mm. You know, some, some coaches like to, they'll rest everyone for one game and they'll try and do a mix and match for the other two games, whereas other coaches like to mix and match for all three games. Because the reality is, coming off the back of two European games and going into two European games on the other side, you're not playing your full-strength team all three games. You'd run them into the ground, and by the end of January, you'd have a medical room that was packed full more than your meeting room that morning. So um, I I think certainly... Ulster should be targeting two win, two home wins at least. And I certainly don't think that they should have much to fear going down to Toman Park either, especially whenever you have the Toman Park factor has been negated by the restrictions down south. Mm. Um, but yes, take it one game at a time. I'm sure Dan has a plan in place in terms of how he's going to rotate his squad, how he's going to make the most of his resources. Mm. I think if you're coming out of these three games, two from three, I think you're happy enough, just given the way that the schedule always falls this time of year. That is the big call for Dan, though, isn't it, John, at the minute? And, and what it is. But you know, do you know what's interesting? You know, if, if it looks as if this COVID thing is going to cause a real hiccup in Europe, um, you know, he, this the next two games, then you, you were looking to say, right, Maybe we should be piling everything into the the the, uh, the league uh, and get as much out of it as we can. So uh, what is really interesting is the quality of these interpros boy for first class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're all they all have been really good games this year, and that's because the the the, the interpro teams, to refer to Leinster, they've been putting out decent sides. Ulster have been putting out decent sides. It hasn't been second string, but like Ulster normally would have sent down a second string to Dublin, they didn't. Mm-hmm. They went down with their you know, the, the full package and they, went, and they came back with a result. And, you know, that's what you need to do. You need to get your best team on the pitch and, and you know, play as strong a side as you can and go out there and try and, try and win every single game. It's like the old Interpros again. It was, it's been very, very good this year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and a lot of that echoes down to the A team as well. When the A team plays, the standard of rugby is brilliant. Mm-hmm. And very entertaining and great to watch. And you know, I'd encourage everybody that if you get a chance to go to watch an A game, if, if they're open to the public, go and watch them because it's, you won't be disappointed. Yeah, I think I, mean, I think you do have to give a bit of credit to the URC for arranging the schedule in such a way that you're now not having interpros where teams are looking at other games as priorities. You know, the fact that Ulster went down to Dublin with a full strength team is it just makes it so much more of a better game than, you know, I, I made a joke after the game that Johnny and I have gone down to the RDS so many times and not seen a win, but realistically, how many times have we gone down and actually seen a full strength Ulster going up against a full strength Leinster? And you can look back and you can count the number of times in the last sort of 15 years on one hand. So the fact that you're actually seeing teams saying we have to prioritize these games is a massive feather in the cap of the URC. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It uh, really benefits the, the league big time. So we shall keep our fingers crossed for both of those games that all goes ahead according to plan. And of course, that there's uh, a couple of good results as well. A couple more questions before we go. Of course, this is our last episode of 2021. So only fitting that we do a little bit of looking back. Peter Gray wants to know what was Ulster's best moment of 2021? Um. 
Well, there's two uh, I would say would be that the win in Claremont uh, was very special. Um, so I, I thoroughly enjoyed that one. And for me, the moment of the of the year would be James Hume's pickup and run in against Leinster at the RDS because that sealed the victory uh, down there and it meant an awful lot uh, to yeah. Ulster supporters and Ulster fans. It's hard to look past one of the two games over the last four weeks. Like, uh, But yeah, I mean, getting a first win down in Dublin since 2013, uh, getting a first win in Claremont ever. It's hard, it's hard to sort of judge between the two. They meant so much for different reasons that I think it's hard to... Hard to really put one above the other. Yeah, but very promising for uh, the the season ahead that both of those are, are so recent. What about a uh, player of twenty twenty one? If you if you had to to pick one, I I would go from uh, Nick Timoney. For me, has been the standout player um, with James Hume very close behind. But one for twenty twenty two, I'm putting the money on Marcus Ray. <laughs> Jump the gun. I haven't even asked that question yet, Baker. No, <laughs> no surprise, the henchman sticking by the hench boy. <laughs> um, Johnny's behalf. I know he said last week that James Hume was his uh, was his player of twenty twenty one, but um, he's firmly. I think he's chairman now of the James Hume Supporters Club. Like over the whole of twenty twenty one, like I, I have to agree with John. I don't think you can pick anybody but Nick Timoney. Like. Mm-hmm. Stepping in to fill in for Marcel Katsia, you know, nobody nobody really wants that role. Ever everyone will say, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll do it. That's my chance to impress. But you'll always know that you're being compared to Marcel Katsia. But Nick Timoney's been outstanding. James Hume has been exceptional this season, but Nick Timoney for the whole 12 months has been by far the best Ulster player. Um, I suppose I'll get my 2022 now as well. I won't even, won't even give you a chance to ask it, Gareth. You're cutting, you're doing Mark Moore head a disservice. That's who asked who will be Ulster's player of 2022. But go on ahead. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to say I want to say Nathan Doak, because but I feel like that's a bit of a cheat answer because he's already kind of broken onto the scene. Um, oh, I know it's not a break. No, I think it's fair enough. So if he like. Ulster's player of 2022. If Nathan Doak's going to be mm. the player of 2022, that's a big call. Well, one one of the reasons why I think he's going to be Ulster's biggest player is because they give them another option at scrum half. And we've seen in the past where Ulster have a big reliance on John Cooney, and that's not a bad thing because John Cooney is a fantastic player and he's done so many great things. But just having that variety at scrum half is massive for Ulster. And if Nathan Doak can continue this upward progression then Ulster have a gem at scrum half. And for the first time since Paul Marshall, they have a homegrown scrum half, which is, I think, a massive thing as well. And I wouldn't disagree with that, actually. From, an, from a Wallace High School point of view. Uh, <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've, I've got to represent the former school, you know? <laughs> but John, you think Marcus Ray is going to have a, a really big 2022 as well? Well, if he continues on this trajectory, yes. Um, I think he'll, um, as long as he can establish himself and, and get a, a run of games, I think it's a get, taking your opportunity when you get it is so important in pro rugby because they don't come often and when they come, you have to make the most of it. And he certainly has put his hand up over the last few games to say he wants to be in that number six shirt. So, um, you know, he'll, he'll have his brother pushing him, obviously, too, whenever he gets fit. Uh, Matty might have a say in that matter. But at the minute, Marcus is doing everything he can to stay there. Um, and I, I wouldn't disagree with Nathan Doak being the uh, another player you could say could have a massive 2022, yeah. There's lots of excitement to look forward to. Absolutely. Christmas dinner is going to be interesting in the Ray household this year. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Taking each other under the table. I'll tell you what, just to add a little bit to your point, John, if someone can nail down that sixth jersey over the next year, they deserve player of the year because that is going to be very hotly contested between Ray, the, the two Rays. You've got Jordy Murphy to bring back into the mix. John Reedy. Um, Sean Reedy, Greg Jones, Dave McCann. A lot of names in there. If someone can make that six jersey their own, then I will happily say right now that they will be my player of 2022. Yeah. 
Well, what about Jacob Stockdale as a shout from from me, the forgotten man of Ulster rugby? Um, if he can get back to to full fitness, I think we've all forgotten just what he's capable of. But uh, how sweet would it be if he gets back and uh, scores a few big tries and knockout games towards the end of the season? I think um, I think everybody'd be delighted for Jacob after a sort of a, a difficult enough year or two that he's had. But um, time will tell. Fingers crossed on that one. So our final question of 2021 from Big Jim. Christmas Eve last year, we found out Marcel was leaving. What will be our Christmas surprise this year? I think, and personally speaking, as well as for Ulster Rugby, I'm hoping for no Christmas surprises this year because the only surprise I can think of is that I will somehow test positive. Or So I think, for me, I don't want any Christmas surprises. And I would say, if you ask the Chiefs of Ulster Rugby, they'd be exactly the same. I hope that I hope there's no Christmas surprises because last year I had to jump back on and do some work because Marcel could see it was confirmed <laughs> to be leaving. So, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> you want anything to tell us? Nothing at all. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, there we go. There we go. So, we have to finish 2021 with John's requested mention of uh, we'll bring back our any other business that we did years ago. John, you have uh any other business item that you want to bring to the table? Yeah, just want a, a shout out to the boys at Ballymacarran Park for lifting the, uh, the Stevenson Shield at the weekend with a, a comprehensive victory over a very tough Queens team um, mm. to win the league for the fifth time in nine years. So well done, boys. Uh, Zach McCall and his team. It was a pleasure to be there to see that happen at the weekend. Very good. Congratulations from all at the uh, Ulster Rugby Roundup, and that is us for twenty twenty one. Do you not get any other any other business? I uh, would. Well, John especially requested it, but go on ahead. Well, I thought I'd give a shout out to uh, to the Bangor Rugby Club boys for uh, for doing the topless singing at Kingspan Stadium on the on Friday night, raising money for Extern. Um, which I know is the the official charity of Ulster. So um, I don't know. I, I was trying to find out there how much they raised, but uh, I know they raised quite a lot and they do it every year and it's a fantastic initiative. So uh, congratulations to them doing that again and all in the name of a good cause. A very fitting way to end 2021. And thank you all very, very much for listening throughout the year. We really, really do appreciate it. And um, here's hoping that a big 2022 is in store ahead for Ulster and also for the podcast. But for 2021, thank you all so much. On behalf of Richard Mulligan, Jonathan Bradley, Michael Sadler, myself, Gareth Hanna, John Dixon. Say thank yes, you. happy Christmas and happy New Year. And Adam McKen. Merry Christmas, one and all. Thank you very much for listening. And have a very, very Merry Christmas.